0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu.
1: Um well at the end of last week, if I remember correctly, we had gotten to, um, we talked about the, uh, the commands that God had given to Abram uh, when he called him in Genesis chapter 12 and we were just uh, starting into the promises that God also makes to Abram in chapter twelve. Um, we had just briefly mentioned those promises and said that we would come back to them in more detail this week. Now, um, as we said last week, uh, if you are being very precise, then you can locate seven specific promises in those three verses in Genesis 12, chapters or excuse me, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, But really, all of those uh, promises can be compressed into three large promises, three general promises. Um, There's the promise that God will give Abram a land, which is uh, at least strongly implicit in the last line of verse 1. Uh, There's the promise that God will give Abram a seed in verse 2. And then in verse 2 into verse 3, there's the promise that God will make Abram and his descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. Now, uh, those promises that God makes to Abram in chapter 12 uh, are extremely important on a number of fronts as you look at the Abrahamic covenant in particular and also as you uh, try to get a sense of the overarching unity of of the covenant of grace and the, the flow of covenant theology. So we want to spend a little bit of time uh, looking at these promises in some detail. Uh, the promises are pretty clearly uh, the promises of the covenant. Uh, it's through these promises and it's by these promises uh, that God will uh, essentially bring his covenantal purposes to pass. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, as you go through the scriptures, it's these promises, whether you're looking at you know, one of them in particular or all of them as a, as a group, uh, these promises become practically synonymous with the covenant. Um, these promises in Genesis 12 are, in every sense of the term, they're covenant promises. And uh, at least for our purposes this morning, we want to particularly notice two things about those covenant promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, the first thing that we need to note about them is that they, they truly are uh, programmatic, you could say, for the covenant of grace. Uh, these promises run throughout the covenant of grace. Uh, in a sense, the covenant of grace can be seen as God's method of fulfilling uh, these promises that He's made uh, so clearly here in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, there are even certain points as you go through the covenants that it seems as if it's these promises and God's uh, faithfulness to them that's kind of spurring the covenant forward. Uh, these promises are brought forward as, um, if if you want to put it this way, it's kind of a, an argument to make God act. Um, yeah, obviously that's in a very particular sort of way that you could say that, but um, but but the, these promises are. are very often seem to be driving the covenant and by the time you get to the end of the covenant of grace by the time you get to the the consummation of the age in the um at the end of the scriptures it seems as if the it, it's the, you know, the the fulfillment of these promises uh, that has been the goal all along so the, these promises that god makes to abram here aren't um of significance only within the Abrahamic covenant, they, they prove very much to be programmatic for all that God is doing throughout the covenant of grace. That's the, the first thing that you, we need to bear in mind about the promises. They have relevance far beyond just God's dealings with Abram. And the, the, the second thing that we need to notice about the promises is that they are spiritual promises. Now, um, when you say that, of course, you have to be careful... You don't want to overly spiritualize the promises. You don't want to get into the the rut of spiritualizing everything in the Old Testament. Um, they're they're spiritual in a in a particular sense of that word. Uh, it's important to to stipulate that in a in an absolute and a real sense, of these promises that God makes here in Genesis twelve have concrete historical fulfillments. They have this world fulfillment it 's not as if God is making promises that never actually come to fruition in this world. Um, all of these promises, all three of them, have definite historical fulfillments in the scriptures uh, that you can you can pretty easily identify uh, in the first instance. the promise of land the the first one that God makes in chapter twelve um, is very very clearly has a definite geographical area in view Uh, even by the time you get into uh, chapter at the end of chapter 13 it's mentioned again uh, in in a little bit of detail but then especially when you get into chapter 15 in Genesis 15 verses 18 through 20 you see that this land that God has promised is a definite piece of soil so to speak Uh, it has a uh, an area that can be delineated by geographical boundaries. Uh, it can be marked out by the nations who inhabit it at the time that God makes the promise. And this, it, it is a, a definite concrete land uh, that God has in view um, in a very real way in his promise of the land. And it's it's similar with the promise of a seed in verse 2. <clears throat> and when you get to Genesis chapter 21, uh, God does give Abram this seed. He gives him Isaac uh, as you go through, you see that Isaac then has Jacob uh, along with Esau, and then through Jacob come uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, and you know, the, the nation of Israel springs from there. So there, there's definitely a, uh, a physical, a historical seed that this promise has in view. And, of course, the, the fullness of the promise of a seed, even in a physical sense, uh, comes with the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4, when you get the genealogies of Christ, um, it's made very explicit uh, that Christ is a direct descendant from Abraham. Um, Christ was a, a physical man born in concrete fulfillment of the promise. You know, there's certainly a heightened sense in which Christ is more than just that fulfillment of the promise, but even just on a purely uh, by, on, on the pure front of biological descent, uh, there is a fulfillment of the promise of a seed. And the case is the same with the promise of Abram being a blessing to all the nations. Uh, particularly when you get into the the time of the United Monarchy uh, under David and then Solomon, uh, you see Abram's descendants being a fairly tangible blessing to all the nations. Uh, for instance, in 1 Kings chapter 10, you have the Queen of Sheba coming uh, to admire Solomon's wisdom and his uh, riches, uh, you see very tangibly, you know, represented in someone like the Queen of Sheba, you see other nations coming to Abram's descendants uh, seeking out wisdom, uh, seeking out at least some trappings of the law and of the teachings. So you know, there's a, a definite physical sense in which uh, even the promise of Abram being a blessing to all the nations uh, is a, a, has a, a concrete physical fulfillment. So when you say that the, the promises are spiritual promises, you know that's not to go down this dangerous road of uh, you know overly spiritualizing the Old Testament, turning everything into a uh, an allegory of something greater. Um, you know there are real historical, tangible fulfillments to all of these promises, but still, ultimately, they are spiritual promises. Um. um that's that's the the the, the truest and fullest sense of those promises. Um, Now, most often, it seems like when we think of uh, Old Testament promises as being spiritual promises, uh, we tend to think of that dynamic as working in only one direction. Uh, We think of God initiating this sort of correspondence between uh, a concrete historical reality and then a future spiritual blessing and then giving that concrete historical fulfillment in history in order to draw his people's hearts forward uh, to a spiritual, uh, complete fulfillment. Now, you know, certainly that's, that's true as far as it goes. You know, there is that sort of one-way correspondence, a, a correspondence from the, uh, the concrete fulfillment in history forward uh, to the ultimate spiritual fulfillment. There is, that, that certainly is a true relationship. Uh, The problem is that it's only half of the relationship that the scriptures describe uh, between the physical realities that God gives uh, and the spiritual heavenly realities uh, that they represent. Now, what what tends to happen, it seems, from this sort of uh, half-truth is that the, the concrete historical fulfillments of God's promises... Uh, in our hearts, and in our minds, and even in our theology, uh, begin to take on an existence and an ultimacy all of their own. Uh, For example, uh, God promises Abram that he'll give him a seed. Now, you know, certainly all Christians, and certainly you would think all Reformed Christians, realize that this uh, promise has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ and his spiritual seed. But the promise also has a... Uh, a very concrete historical fulfillment in Isaac and then in Jacob and then in all the descendants born to him. Now, and if we, if we conceive of this historical fulfillment, you know, Isaac, Jacob, nations of Israel, or nation of Israel, uh, if we conceive of that historical fulfillment as in some point, in, in some way, the starting point of the relationship between uh, sign and ultimate blessing. Uh, then the tendency is for that concrete fulfillment to take on a uh, a sort of self-independent importance. Uh, if If the earthly type that God gives is the starting point for our understanding of the heavenly reality, then that earthly type is invested with a pretty definite importance. Now, that importance can then lead to a Uh, An importance for the type outside of and and in distinction from uh, the ultimate heavenly fulfillment of the type. Um, Is that making sense at all, or is that not too clear?
0: I thought I was getting into you. Finished that last part of the sentence.
1: Should have stopped while I was (laughs) heading. So, I
0: understand the historical type has a significance because it's sort of bringing. Confirmation that
1: yes, the heavenly reality is, is going to be fulfilled because this earthly type has been fulfilled? Yeah, the, um, I'll try to draw a, a, a diagram, whether that's helpful or not, we'll see. Um, uh, you know, now certainly, um, most. Everybody would agree that there's a you know a, a correspondence between the earthly realities that are given, the types that are given, and the heavenly realities to which they point. And our, our tendency is to think of maybe have a marker that's gonna mark a little bit darker than that. have, in this case, God and Abram. If you conceive of, most often the relationship is conceived of this way, that God kind of gives Abram a type. Um, Well, the passage we're going to look at in a second deals more with Moses, so we'll deal with Moses here. Um, Say, God gives Moses the type of the tabernacle. That's a Elaborate drawing of a tabernacle. Uh, the tendency is to think that God has given this sign or this this earthly type, and this type is kind of moving toward <clears throat> the spiritual reality of, well, I guess in this sense it would be, you know, glory in God's presence. You uh, that you know God. There's there's a relationship between the type and the fulfillment, but it our our tendency is to think of the, the type as moving toward the fulfillment, given in time and then moving toward the fulfillment. Kind of that one way correspondence. Is that diagram helpful at all? Not too much? I'm guessing you're not through you're not through with your argument, right? You're gonna argue that that the this the anti type what what's in heaven that what's on earth is actually a reflection of what's existed in heaven eternally. But I don't know if that's yeah that's kind of, that's kind of where i'm heading yeah 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 it yeah that, that that that's where i'm heading with it um yeah hopefully it'll it'll, it'll get less confusion as we go um you know when, when when we conceive of it you know in this way this the the, the earthly type tends to take on a pretty significant importance, and a, uh, an importance that in a sense becomes almost divorced from the heavenly reality, you know, that God has initiated this, uh, it's almost as if he has initiated this heavenly reality through the earthly type, that can, that the, the earthly type is kind of the starting point of his movement toward the heavenly reality, and so that makes this earthly type take on um, pretty extreme importance. Uh, That that tends to be the way that we think of uh, the promises that God makes, uh, the the types that he gives, and in this case, specifically the promises that he gives uh, to Abram. Um, But like was just pointed out, that's, um, in a sense, only half of the relationship. Uh, The scriptures pretty uniformly describe a relationship that runs two directions. Um, Instead of this construction, you have something more like this. You have God up here. In this case, we're dealing with Moses down here. And this um, this this line rep- represents the heavenly reality of uh, glory, and glory in the sense of in the glorified state in God's presence. It's an ongoing reality, and the the sign, the earthly type, is almost like a it's a kind of a, a temporary disclosure of a an ongoing spiritual reality. Uh, the reality has existed prior to the type, and it exists after the type. The type just essentially makes what was invisible visible to man um, at certain points in redemptive history. Um, uh, in the, the, first, the first little diagram there, uh, you have essentially the, the symbol that's given moving toward uh, the realization of the reality of the promise, Whereas in the second instance, uh, you have um, the symbol essentially giving a a temporary disclosure of an ongoing reality. So that's that's the sense in which I mean, in this way, there's a a one-way correspondence. Whereas in this scheme, there's a a two-way correspondence uh, between the reality and the type. Now, one of the places where that's made the most clear in the scriptures ...is in the book of Hebrews. Uh, If you turn to Hebrews chapter 5... ...we get a a glimpse of the the sort of relationship I'm trying to describe. Um, In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5... ...at that point the epistle is in the midst of its discussion of the high priesthood of Christ... ...and in chapter 8 verse 5... Uh, the author refers to earthly priests quote who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain now there in that verse uh, the tabernacle and you know therefore by extension the temple and all of the furniture within the tabernacle is seen not only as pointing forward to coming atoning realities, but it's also seen as being what Hebrews calls a copy and shadow of heavenly things now in the in the Greek there in hebrews eight uh, copy and shadow uh the the w- word translated as copy is hubodikmatai. And shadow is skia. Um, in in this instance, I mean, they can have different nuances of meaning. But in this instance, they're most likely being used fairly synonymously, uh, with you know marginal shades of different emphasis. Uh, Hupodikmati copy uh, means something along the lines of the, the earthly copy of a heavenly reality, or even uh, given the particulars of the the word. It, can't even be something like a sketch of a heavenly reality. It's a copy in the sense of looking at the reality and making a likeness uh, on the earth. And then, skia, shadow, uh, has the sense of almost a, a metaphorical sort of shadow, uh, being uh, bound to and dependent upon a solid body that casts the shadow. So when you put those two words together as they're put together there in Hebrews 8.5 the point is being pretty strongly made that the earthly realities are copied concrete projections of previously existing heavenly realities. Um, These types and these signs that are given or the promises that are given to Abram uh, they are earthly reflections of prior heavenly realities. Now you hear the in Hebrews eight, you know the the author isn't basing this on some sort of extra biblical Platonic sort of philosophy with archetypal ideas and all that nonsense. In my opinion, um, he's very clearly you know self consciously drawing his doctrine from the scriptures. Uh, in there in verse eight five or chapter eight verse five, he quotes uh, directly from Hebrews or excuse me from Exodus chapter twenty five verse forty. Uh, in Exodus 25:40, Moses is on Mount Sinai. Uh, God's instructing him how to have the tabernacle furniture constructed. Uh, and the scriptures uh, speak as if Moses is shown a pattern that he then copies. Uh, Moses is given kind of a, a glimpse of the heavenly realities that are then represented in the tabernacle furniture, which then in turn will point forward uh, to the fulfillment of uh, God's atonement and God's presence in Christ. So, yeah, at least with uh, the tabernacle furniture in Hebrews 8, uh, it seems pretty clear that the earthly reality is not the starting point for our understanding of the spiritual reality. Our starting point for understanding the spiritual reality is, strangely enough, the spiritual reality. You know, you can't, you know if you want to understand what this is, you don't start your investigation here, as you would in this scheme, but rather to understand the the fullness of the promise that God is making, you have to realize that even the earthly type he gives is pointing back to reality that exists previously. Uh, this loses a lot of its um, ultimate interpretive significance, I guess you could say, uh, when you when you realize that it is a copy of something uh, previously existing. Does that make sense? Is that just becoming more confusing than it was initially?
0: Did you say, <coughs> the one point again,
1: um, uh, you said it one way that was really succinct. Or to understand God's promises, like we need
0: to understand that it's the heavenly reality that exists first and then the shadow, or I, I forgot the time exactly said it.
1: Um, if I put it succinctly and clearly, it was probably a mistake. Um, uh, I think it said that that in order to understand the heavenly reality, we don't uh, begin our invest well we could begin it there. Um, that uh in understanding the ultimate heavenly reality, uh the we don't uh it's not the earthly reality that has ultimate interpretive significance, but it's actually the heavenly reality itself that has the the ultimate significance. Uh, Our ultimate starting point for understanding the heavenly reality is not the earthly type, but actually the spiritual reality itself to which the earthly type points. Does that kind of recapture what... that that might seem like a uh a strange distinction to make or to spend much time on uh but you know in in this in this way of understanding the relationship which tends to be the kind of default uh assumption the default understanding in much of at least popular christianity uh if um in that understanding, the signs that God gives, the earthly realities that he gives, become almost like a, a placeholder that God gives to his people to embody a promise that he's in the process of making real. Um, you know, he hasn't um, In this case, he hasn't really gotten glory altogether yet, so he gives the tabernacle and then the temple just to pacify his people until he can make this happen, if you see what I mean. But whereas in this, in this instance, God has... If he, he has his people from all eternity, he has a place prepared prepare for them, everything has been secured from before the foundations of the earth in the council of peace, and when God gives the tabernacle, it's as a condescending gift to his people to draw their hearts here. It's not as if God's given them something to keep them, uh, keep them occupied while he makes things happen. Uh, he is disclosing to them something that already is secure. Um, now, the, um, in this, in this construction, the signs that are given, the promise, in this case, the promise is given to Abram, um, are kind of almost steps in God's realization of his promise, whereas in this understanding, the signs given are steps in God's revelation of something he already has accomplished. They're not steps in the uh, accomplishment of God's purposes. They're steps in the revelation of God's purposes. Um, that uh, that seems to me to be the, the sort of dynamic that's being indicated there in Hebrews 8.5, uh, that God, he's not progressively accomplishing, he's progressively revealing of what he has secured from eternity. Um, When you get into Hebrews chapter 9, particularly in verses 23 and 24, uh, you get the same dynamic being described there. Uh, In Hebrews 9, the scriptures are speaking of the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, and it says this. It says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better, set, better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now there again, the, the tabernacle and later the temple furniture is said to be, in verse 23, copies of the things in the heavens, and the interior of the tabernacle itself is said to be, in verse 24, copies of the true heavenly places. And so again, you see the earthly realities are visible glimpses of a greater, coexisting, controlling heavenly reality. Has that been made repetitiously clear enough? <laughs> um, they, they, they are. It's the, the greater spiritual reality that's ongoing, uh, that gives meaning to, uh, to the heavenly or to the, to the earthly sign. Now, that, that sort of dynamic that is revealed with, seems to me, pretty strong clarity in Hebrews uh, in relation to the tabernacle and its furniture uh, applies also to the covenantal promises that God's making to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, you know, on the one hand, there are, as we said a couple minutes ago, there are concrete historical fulfillments of these promises. You know, in terms of this diagram, there is a, a tabernacle that's given. You know, there is a, a land that's given, there is a seed that's given, there is a blessing to all the nations that, give, that is given. There are concrete historical earthly realities that are given. And all of them undoubtedly point forward to a greater fulfillment that uh, God's people will see in the future. But also, all of those promises are simply temporary disclosures of a prior and controlling heavenly reality. You could even go so far as to say, I think, that the earthly types or the earthly signs, or in this case the earthly promises that God gives and the earthly realization of those promises, uh, those earthly realizations have no purpose and no significance outside of their relationship to the heavenly reality. If you, in terms of the tabernacle here, if you divorce this sign from the overarching spiritual reality, this sign loses all meaning. It just becomes a tent in the desert. Um, it, it's, its purpose, its meaning is entirely bound up with the ongoing spiritual reality that it reveals. And it's in that sense that the the promises of Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, are spiritual promises. They they do have earthly fulfillments, but even those earthly fulfillments are temporary glimpses of spiritual realities. Now, you see that in each of the three promises that God makes. Uh, In the first instance, you see it very clearly... In the promise that God makes of a land. uh, The promise of a land that he makes to Abram. Now as we've seen a couple minutes ago. uh, This promise had a definite physical fulfillment. It had a land that could be measured by rivers and nations who inhabited it at that point. But ultimately, uh, its fulfillment is much greater than just a physical land of Canaan. Now probably the, uh, the starkest indication of that comes in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Hebrews is proven to be pretty significant there. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, several clear indications are given of the true purpose of the promise of land. Uh, In chapter 11, verses 8 through 10, uh, Hebrews says this. Uh, It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then just a couple verses down in verse 13, uh, the author is referring to all of those, all the way up through Abraham and Sarah, who had died in faith. And it says that they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. And then finally, in verse 16, it says of that same group that they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, in all that, it seems that Hebrews 11 is making a a very clear and a very startling, if you think about it, and a very important point. Uh, the promise of a land that was given to Abram was referring ultimately to a heavenly land. And what's startling that you get in Hebrews 11 is that Abraham knew it. Uh, Abraham knew that the promise given to him ultimately had in view a heavenly country. Now, we don't know what degree, uh, the degree to which Abram grasped that. Uh, We don't know how clear his understanding was. But the scriptures there in Hebrews 11, pretty clearly tell us that in and through the earthly promises, Abram saw and was looking toward the heavenly realities. Uh, Even when Abram's feet were in Canaan, his heart and his eyes were in heaven. Uh, Abram knew that God's promises, while they would have earthly fulfillments, ultimately were pointing to spiritual realities. Now, in this particular instance, uh, in the instance of the promise of a land, uh, the New Testament also gives us further expansion on that promise given to Abraham or Abram. so I keep flipping back and forth how I refer to him um, but uh, there's a even a, a kind of a, a progressive development of that promise in the New Testament. You find that particularly in uh, Paul and his epistles, uh, for instance in Romans chapter four verse thirteen. Uh, Paul's in the midst of his discussion of how Abraham was justified by faith, and he writes in Hebrews four thirteen. He says, "For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through law, but through the righteousness of faith." Now, did you catch what what Paul did there in Hebrews, or excuse me, in Romans four thirteen? He wrote that Abraham had received a promise that he would be the heir. Of the world. And the world there is cosmos. The, you know, in very literally you know, all of uh, the world. Now actually as we know in Genesis 12. Abraham had been promised a land. But in Paul's writing that promise of a land. A very specific geographical area. Has been expanded to be a promise of all the earth. Uh, you get the indications of the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 6. and Ephesians 6 Paul's beginning a, a set of instructions to the Christian or to Christian families. Uh, dealing with relationships of parents and children and that those sorts of dynamics. And he writes he writes this in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1. He says children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother your father and your mother. Which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Now there, if you know your Ten Commandments, you realize that Paul is quoting the Fifth Commandment uh, in the course of his call for children to be obedient to their parents. But did you catch, again, what Paul has done uh, with the commandment? Now, of course, the, the, the Fifth Commandment occurs twice in the Old Testament, now, first, it's given in Exodus 20, verse 12. And in Exodus 20, verse 12, the commandment says uh, you know, to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. A you know, clear reference to the promised land uh, to which the Israelites were heading. And then when the uh, commandment recurs in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, there, it's phrased this way. You, uh, Israelites are called to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Again, clearly a reference to the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, both times there that the fifth commandment occurs in the Old Testament, uh, the realm in which longevity and blessing is to occur is very specifically the land that God had promised to Abram Uh, The land that the Israelites were on their way to inherit. uh, The land that they then would go to possess under Joshua. But in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul somewhat subtly says that that land, that land promised to Abram, is all of the earth. Uh, If you remember in Ephesians 6, Paul says, when he's quoting the fifth commandment, he says, Honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. Now, Paul there, obviously, he's writing under inspiration. It's not like he's uh, giving a, an imprecise rendering of the fifth commandment. Uh, there's a reason that Paul has switched land to all of the earth. Uh, that was the land that God was promising. He was promising Abram all of the earth. That's the, the direction that the promise was moving. Uh, it's the The significance of what Paul is doing there is only increased when you realize that the people to whom Paul was writing this epistle and the church in Ephesus was a predominantly Gentile church. And so uh, Paul is writing to Gentiles and telling them that God's promises to Abraham are of all of the earth or they pertain to all of the earth and they are to the Gentiles. You know, Paul, uh, Paul very clearly there uh, is speaking of the, uh, the expansiveness of the promises that God had made to Abram. Uh, very clearly the, the promise that started out as a promise of land, of, of a defined geographical area, by the time you get to Paul, uh, the understanding has developed into that land being all of the earth. It's the earth of which Paul speaks uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25, where he speaks of the creation groaning, uh, awaiting the fullness of redemption. Um, Paul has a clear sense that the fullness of the land promise uh, wasn't fulfilled under Joshua. It wasn't fulfilled when the Israelites returned after the exile. Uh, The promise of the land that was given to Abram will be be fulfilled only when there is a redeemed people living in a redeemed creation. Uh, The the shadow, so to speak, uh, the the shadow and copy, to use the language of Hebrews, uh, the shadow and copy... Uh, that was given to abram has been is is seen to actually have in view uh the act the uh, an entirely redeemed creation so the the promise of the land the land promise that God gave to Abram had a concrete historical earthly fulfillment in the land of Canaan, doubtlessly, but that earthly land always was simply a temporary earthly manifestation of an enduring heavenly reality. Uh, it always, you know, in, in this scheme, it always was a temporary disclosure of this ongoing heavenly reality. Uh, and if you remember back to what we saw in Hebrews 11 a minute ago, Abram himself realized that. Uh, when Abram stood and was promised the land, when God, you know, in, uh, I guess in Genesis 13 where God has tells Abram to look out over the land and all that he sees will be his. Even as Abram was looking at the land, in some sense, the scriptures tell us, he understood that what God was promising was a heavenly country. Uh, The the type was not important in and of itself. It didn't have any relevance in and of itself. Uh, Its importance was only as it provided a disclosure of the heavenly reality. Uh, That's the, the case with the promise of the land. Uh, the same certainly is true with the promise of a seed. Uh, the, God's promise to Abram of a seed was very concretely and definitely fulfilled in Isaac, um, when Isaac is born several chapters later in Genesis. But ultimately, as you know, the, the promise had Christ in view. Uh, since the pretemporal council of peace, Christ had been the covenant head, the redeemer of his people. Uh, He'd been promised uh, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And then in this uh, promise that God makes to Abram of a seed, uh, this pre-existing invisible promise, you could say, is being made visible in an earthly seed. Uh, When Isaac's born, it's making visible uh, the prior invisible promise of God. Um, Paul makes that very clear in Galatians 3.16 where he explicitly says that the seed promised to Abram was Christ. It wasn't Isaac. Uh, Isaac was a fulfillment of the promise but the ultimate uh, fulfillment that was in view was the coming of Christ. But also uh, the the New Testament doesn't doesn't only tell us that Christ was in view but also that all Christians were in view. Uh, In Galatians 3.29, just after Paul has told us that Christ is the promised seed of Abraham, he goes on to tell us, in Galatians 3.29, he says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So the promised seed wasn't only Christ, but it's also everyone who is in Christ. It's all Christians. Uh, So this this promise of a seed, which had such a, a critical physical fulfillment in Isaac, a very dramatic fulfillment in Isaac, ultimately had in view Christ and all of his people. Uh, A Christ who, it's very clear in this instance, a Christ who already existed prior to the promise. Um, In terms of this diagram here, God didn't give Abram Isaac just to keep his hopes going while he came up with Christ. Christ has existed... From all eternity, he's eternal. Uh, since the pretemporal council of peace, he's been the redeemer and head of the elect. The promise, the earthly uh, fulfillment that God gives in Isaac and in Jacob, etc., um, are but earthly disclosures of the ongoing, prior, controlling heavenly reality. Uh, that's the pretty clearly the case with the promise of a seed. Um, and the same applies to the promise uh, of being a blessing to all the nations. Um, as we said a couple minutes ago, you see a couple of different ways in which that promise has an earthly fulfillment. Um, it's a little bit less tangible. You know, uh, being a blessing to the nations is less tangible than a seed or a land, so it's a little bit uh, less concrete even in its earthly fulfillments, but you certainly get many instances of it in the uh, Davidic and Solomonic monarchies uh, with other nations paying tribute to Israel, uh, coming to Israel to seek out wisdom, uh, in that case particularly under, under Solomon. Uh, so there are those earthly fulfillments, but ultimately uh, the promise has its fulfillment in the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. Uh, when Christ gives his disciples disciples uh, the great Commission in matthew twenty eight eighteen through twenty uh, he claims dominion over all the earth, and he sends his disciples out uh, to take the gospel to all the nations to be very clearly be a, an eternal blessing to all of the nations in fact, in Galatians chapter three, verse eight, Paul even writes that in this particular promise, this promise that Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations uh, in that promise. According to Paul, God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand uh, the The promise of being a worldwide blessing was an early gospel. Excuse me Galatians three verse eight. know that this this promise of a being a worldwide blessing was, uh, <clears throat> uh, 3, finds its fulfillment in The worldwide proclamation of the gospel to a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, um, and to be reminded again, not to make you, lull, not to lull you to sleep with repetition, but this is a people that God has had from all eternity. Uh, he has had His elect, uh, an elect of every nation, tribe, and tongue, since the pretemporal council of peace. So when He gives this promise, uh, when you have foreign nations flocking to see Solomon's riches and learn from his wisdom, uh, God is giving a temporal disclosure of a previously existing earth uh, heavenly reality uh, that actually provides the meaning for the earthly fulfillment so you know both in in general and in particular with each of the three promises uh, there in Genesis 12 1 through 3 uh, you see that these promises that were so programmatic for the covenant of grace are spiritual promises in 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 this sense, they are uh, temporal disclosures of previously existing heavenly realities. Um, It's the heavenly reality uh, that's forming the substructure for the promise uh, that's given and for the uh, earthly fulfillment of it. Uh, It's that heavenly reality that is the ultimate uh, meaning uh, that controls our understanding even of the earthly type. It's not as if the earthly type controls how we understand the heavenly reality. The heavenly reality controls how we understand the earthly type. Um, Now, as I said a minute ago, or I guess it's been several minutes ago now, um, this understanding of how the promises work and how they relate to the heavenly realities is very important in a number of ways. Uh, we've spent a good bit of time on it because I think it's it's important to kind of drill into our heads and to see not just in theory that this is the way they relate, but each of the promises uh, clearly has an earthly fulfillment, but it's pertaining to a, an ongoing pre-existing heavenly reality. I think it's important to see that that actually plays out with each of the promises uh, because... This understanding of the promises is very important in a number of different ways. On the one hand, it certainly provides a a clear picture of the overall unity of the covenant of grace. uh, The unity of God's purposes within it. Uh, God isn't, um, as as you get different earthly types along the way, it's not as if God is uh, changing his method. It's not as if he's uh, progressively fulfilling something that he couldn't get to earlier earlier. Uh, rather he has this one ongoing purpose, ongoing heavenly realities uh, that he of which he gives uh, different uh, disclosures on earth at different times, uh, and that it seems to me serves to to anchor us uh, as we move on and consider the post Abrahamic covenants, uh, each of the covenants that you come to, you know the the mosaic, the Davidic etc, um, each of them will take various Uh, ones of these three promises from Genesis 12, uh, they'll take different promises and they'll view them in different ways. Um, And so understanding from the outset exactly what these promises had in view uh, can be important in keeping you from error later on. Uh, That, you know, it's not as if God in Genesis 12 was just dealing with the physical land while he worked his way up to the heavenly reality it always has had in view the heavenly reality. So later when he deals with the land, for instance in the Mosaic Covenant, it still has in view the heavenly reality. Um, but I think also this understanding of the, the promises and how they relate to the heavenly realities uh, helps us avoid a great deal of the uh, error that you find afoot uh, concerning ethnic and national Israel today. Um, There's, you know, quite simply a a difference between a people and a land that were sort of, you know, in in this construction, uh, a people and a land who were sort of uh, steps on a redemptive ladder, you know, kind of the the starting of God's redemption. There's a difference between viewing ethnic Israel and uh, the national Israel that way, and in the other instance, viewing uh, ethnic Israel in the time of Abraham on uh, as a temporary disclosure of an ongoing, pre-existing spiritual people uh, that God had had from before the foundations of the earth. Um, it gives the type an entirely different flavor, uh, an entirely different ultimacy. Um, now, you know, as you all know, in kind of general popular Christianity today, um, it's it's all very heavily, even if subtly at times, influenced by dispensationalism, Uh, and you get just rampant misunderstandings of ethnic Israel, uh, of uh, the Jewish people, uh, their role in the world, their role in redemption, their status at the end of the age, what Christians are to think about Israel, all all these sorts of things, and you you get those confusions also within uh, Reformed Christianity. Uh, as you you know go into ministry and you're in a pulpit somewhere you'll find that even amongst the most reformed folks in your congregation there's kind of an implicit misunderstanding of Israel and of ethnic Jews uh, it's 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 really it's it's shocking how, how pervasive it is and i think it's you know because it's it's so pervasive in kind of pop christianity people imbibe it without really thinking too critically about it Uh, And those misunderstandings can impact uh, a number of things. It it can hinder evangelism. uh, It impacts our prayers. uh, It it, uh, can have pretty manifold implications. And those sorts of things will crop up in your ministry. And it's important uh, when they do arise that uh, it's important to remember that those promises, the promises that are still with us today in the scriptures, the promises that are so misunderstood today that from the very first time God breathed them out to Abram, he was talking of a spiritual people. He was talking of a spiritual land. Uh, he was talking of a spiritual, uh, a spiritual blessing to all the nations. You know, he gave physical fulfillments along the way, uh, but from the very first giving of the promise, it was a spiritual reality of which God was speaking, and as we saw in Hebrews eleven, Abram himself knew it. Uh, Abram knew uh, that God wasn't ultimately promising him a piece of geography, uh, he was promising him glory. Uh, Abram himself knew that. It it seems that we oftentimes forget it. But I think it's, um, if if we keep in mind, you know, this understanding of the earthly types, the covenantal promises, um, it can help us avoid a a good bit of error, error that's afoot today and hopefully help us explain it more clearly and more clearly than I have this morning uh, to the folks in your congregations. Um, Let's we'll say it's time for, for chapel. Uh, just as a note, if, if, you're, if, if this sort of thing interests you, if I haven't beaten that interest out of you um, and you want to do more reading on the relationship of Old Testament promises, uh, particularly dealing with Israel, uh, a book I would highly recommend to you uh, is by O. Palmer Robertson, um, same, same man as wrote uh, Christ of the Covenants. Uh, the book is called The Israel of God, and he, he deals in there very extensively with uh, the promises to Abram uh, and their, relation, their, their movement through the scriptures, and he even gets into some things dealing with uh, some, well, at that time, contemporary political sorts of issues. Uh, it was written in 2000, I think, so it's not exactly contemporary, but um, it's a, a helpful book Uh, in understanding uh, the Old Testament types of Israel, their land, their worship, all those sorts of things. If you're interested, that would be a good uh, resource to have.
0: The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.